Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a new U of M study sheds light on opioid-related births statewide, and former Minnesota Viking Ben Lieber gives a progress report on the Purple as we head into their bye week. But first... The blue wave that swept across the nation in this week's midterm elections did not spare Minnesota Republicans, as MNN's Bill Warner tells us. Democrat Tim Walls is Minnesota's governor-elect. I know that there are many Minnesotans out there who might have had a different vision of Minnesota. And I have a message for those voters tonight. I will be your governor just as much as I will be for the people in this room. We have that opportunity to build on the things that this state has done, to create a way of life second to none, to build a politics of cooperation and collaboration that will be a model for this country. Walls took 54% of the vote to Republican Jeff Johnson's 42. I hope everyone in this room will keep up the fight. Keep fighting to make Minnesota about people, about individuals and not about government and not about bureaucracy and not about state agencies because it's the people in this state that make Minnesota so great. Johnson says about Walls. I absolutely don't just wish him luck, but I wish him success because I want to retire in this state. I want my kids to to raise their family in this state. And this is the greatest state in America. Walls' campaign motto was One Minnesota, a theme echoed by Senator Amy Klobuchar in her victory speech when she talked about the election night two years ago not being easy for Democrats. But guess what? In 2018, Minnesota is roaring back to say we are one Minnesota. That is what we are. Klobuchar said we must end divisiveness between political parties. Many people have lost faith in our democracy. And I get why that is. What we should really be talking about is not what right and left, but what's right and wrong. Klobuchar, as expected, beat Republican challenger Jim Newberger by a wide margin, 60% to 36. Democrats also kept the U.S. Senate seat, formerly held by Al Franken. Tina Smith defeating Republican Karen Housley, also by a healthy margin, 53% to 42. I am grateful to everyone in Minnesota who has put their faith in me. And I will work hard every single day as your United States Senator. And Smith lauded her fellow Minnesotan in the U.S. Senate. Amy was the first woman to be elected Senator from Minnesota. And tonight, you have made it too. Housley said in her concession speech, Senator Smith and I disagree on many things, but now it's time to come together and move forward for the good of the state that we all love. Also this week. Yeah, it was tough. It was the challenge of a lifetime. By a narrow four-point margin, Democrat Keith Ellison won a hard-fought battle for Minnesota Attorney General, defeating Republican Doug Warlow. Ellison's message to people concerned about domestic abuse allegations against him. I'm going to earn their trust, and I don't blame them for having trouble. I take this kind of stuff seriously myself, and I want everybody to know that as your uh, Attorney General, I'm going to be on the side of people 
who have been harmed. Ellison was behind in the latest polls, but analysts say a last-minute campaign push, plus other Democrats doing well on election night, may have given him the win. Democrats regained a majority in the U.S. House, with Minnesota contributing to those gains. Democrat Angie Craig unseated Republican Jason Lewis in the 2nd Congressional District. We got caught in a little bit of, um, I wouldn't say a blue wave, but um, I should, maybe a green wave. They had a heck of a lot more money than we did. Uh, and that's, sometimes that's tough to combat. And five-term Republican Congressman Eric Paulson lost to Democrat Dean Phillips in the 3rd Congressional District. And although it wasn't a blue-to-red flip and it was not a surprise, it was an historic moment when Democrat Ilhan Omar won the 5th Congressional District race, becoming the first Somali-American to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. I didn't think this, this many amazing wins were going to happen. Uh, and I, have, I always say you get what you organized for. and We worked really hard for this big victory for everyone. Uh, and it feels really good. In this difficult week for Republicans, they did, however, as expected, flip the 8th Congressional District in Northeast Minnesota. Thank you very much. Supporters in Proctor as Republican Pete Stauber defeated Democrat Joe Radinovich. For just the second time in 74 years, voters in the 8th District are sending a Republican to Congress. Analysts say continued support on the iron range for President Trump, plus Republican backers in the southern part of the district likely gave Stauber the win. It appears Republicans also took the U.S. House seat away from Democrats in the 1st Congressional District in southern Minnesota. But that margin is so narrow that Democrat Dan Fian is not conceding. Fian says not so fast, pointing to a margin of just 0.45% between the candidates. In a statement, Fian added, quote, As this race is approximately 500 votes away from triggering a recount, the campaigns owe it to voters in the 1st Congressional District to wait until official results are in, end quote. That means waiting on official tallies from county canvas officers in the coming days. Hagedorn trying to flip the district Republican after Tim Walls vacated the seat for his successful run for governor. J.W. Cox, MNN. Democrats also did well in the Minnesota House, taking 18 seats from Republicans, many of those in the suburbs, to regain a majority in that chamber. But Republicans held on to their razor-thin one-vote majority in the Minnesota Senate. Republican Jeff Howe of Rockville beating Democrat Joe Persky of Sartell in District 13 in central Minnesota. That special election was to fill the seat of former Senator Michelle Fishbach of Painesville, who became lieutenant governor when Tina Smith was appointed to the U.S. Senate. Well, it didn't take long for battle lines to be drawn for the fast-approaching 2019 legislative session. The newly re-elected Republican majority leader of the Minnesota Senate, Niswa Senator Paul Gazelka, opposing Governor-elect Walls' plan for a gas tax increase. Revenue moving towards transportation is important. I just don't think that we need to raise taxes to do it. Governor-elect Walls argues... You can't just say you're not going to do anything in terms of revenue or budgets and you're going to magically get roads, bridges, and transit. Well, Scott, it will be an interesting 2019 legislative session, which, by the way, begins in under two months. And we'll have more with Bill Werner and his look at the blue wave in Minnesota when Minnesota Matters returns. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and, of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier-hound-chihuahua-looking kind of mix. 
tremendous dog. Mm, I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, oh, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A blue wave certainly hit Minnesota in this week's election, but to look more closely at what really caused that in our state, MNN's Bill Werner talked with Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz. Let's go right down the list of the major races. Governor in the U.S. Senate races. Um, what happened there? What happened there, I think, is a couple of different things. First off, it was the dramatically increased turnout in the urban cores, especially Minneapolis, St. Paul, Hennepin, Ramsey County. And it was a straight party line vote, in many ways a repudiation of of Donald Trump, and that drove a lot of people to the polls. Also, what we saw here, at least we preliminarily could say, is that suburban women came out and voted and came out in large percentages. At least that's what it's looking like at this Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Um, And that had a big impact on the election. So I think it's, it's mostly what? If this was a referendum on Donald Trump, as this election was um, nationwide, it was also a referendum on Donald Trump statewide, and the Democrats significantly benefited from that that anti-Trump fervor this year. There has been a lot said about Minnesota becoming more red. What happened in this election? Does that belie that? There's a little bit of truth to that, but but uh-huh. this is in a sense that what we saw was um, at least a flipping of, of one congressional district in the 8th. Right. Um, and in terms of how, again, the partisan voting patterns demonstrated, cl- again, clear, clear Republican and Democratic areas in the state. But in many ways, the Democrats did very, very well in Minnesota in this election. Yes, they they, did. they retained um, all the statewide positions. So now it's been what? It's now going to be back to the last time Tim Pawlenty won won his governorship is the last time a Republican won statewide office in Minnesota. That's a, that's a while. That's a while ago. That's, what, 12 years now? 12 yes. years now. Um, so Republicans aren't doing well statewide. They, they have a very slim one-seat majority in the Minnesota Senate at this point. So, so it, it, it may not be that, that the state is slipping as much into that red territory. There's still some purplish there. But it's certainly not what it looked like two years ago when you could say that when Clinton barely won the state at the presidential level, you were thinking, well, maybe, maybe this is a state that's ready to flip. I want to just dig a little bit more deeply into this issue of purple versus red versus blue in the attorney general's race. Right. Because that was fiercely fought. It was probably the uh, the most hotly contested attorney general race in decades. Correct. I would say. Keith Ellison ultimately won it. He came out of the gate pretty much with the same kind of margins over his Republican opponent as 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 all the other statewide races. It narrowed a bit, but ultimately he won that race. There were a lot of folks, even Democrats, we knew this, that were 
had qualms about about Ellison. What was the mechanism you think that brought him the victory? I think a couple of different things happened here. Is one is in the probably closing week of the campaign, maybe two weeks. Wardlow went into hiding. Um, basically, um, yes, he did. He did go into hiding. wasn't really campaigning very much, um, and he was doing well when the focus was on Keith Ellison. And when Keith Ellison was able finally to to sort of get some of his problems behind him in terms of allegations of domestic abuse or so forth um, behind him and put the focus on Wardlow, I think that helped. I also think that he benefited tremendously, that is Keith Ellison, from that tremendous urban, you know, metro area turnout, which appeared to be almost a straight party line vote for him. Now, he didn't do as well as some of the other statewide Democrats, um, but but needless to say, I think he benefited from that very, very heavy turnout. And there was a lot of of fear that was being played out there. Uh, His campaign said, what's going to happen if Doug Wardlow is our attorney general? And and it sounds like that 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 resonated with a significant number of voters, despite the qualms that they had regarding the allegations, unsubstantiated although they be, against Keith Ellison, the domestic abuse allegations. I think you're right. And what's interesting, as you mentioned this there, is how in many ways, guess what? Fear was the big word this year. Yes, it was. Fear of Donald Trump, fear of Doug Wardlow, fear of immigrants, wherever you want to do it. Both parties ran on a campaign of fear. On both sides of the equation. Now, now we've got an interesting situation in the Minnesota legislature, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier. Uh, And I'll mention the the Democrats win in the governor's race because that's obviously a key operative uh, operating consideration in this whole thing. Right. Okay. But Tim Walls, Democratic governor, is going to have a Democratic Minnesota House of Representatives. Correct. He's going to have a Republican Minnesota Senate, but by only, only by a one, one vote margin. And significantly, he is not, uh, the, the next governor of the state of Minnesota is not going to have to deal with a very conflictive Speaker of the House, Kurt Doubt. Correct. And, and a probably much more person agreeable to compromise in the form of Paul Gazelka, majority leader of the Minnesota Senate again. How does how does this whole dynamic change? Well, it clearly changes in the sense that when you had a Democratic governor with Dayton and the Republicans controlling both of the houses, that creates a different, let's say, dynamic than you see that's going to go into 2019, where what? It's, but for one vote, the Democrats control everything. Um, they would control the House, they would control the Senate, the governorship, all the constitutional office, everything. Um, this is going to put enormous pressure on Gazelka um, in the Senate. And Democrats' strategy would have to be to line up the issues such that it really puts pressure on possibly bringing a couple of Republicans. Oh, all these is one Republican vote. Over. That's right. That's I mean, right. I mean that, that's they're really they aren't in the driver's seat as much as after two years of the Dayton administration when he had a Democratic House right. and a Democratic Senate and and all of the uh, the gay marriage legislation was passed and so on. But but they're they're not all that far from it really, are they? No, they're very close at this point. And keep in mind that the entire legislature, both House and Senate, is up for election in two years during a presidential election year. If the Democrats are smart, if they play their cards right and set this one up, they can set up the 2020 elections in Minnesota um, in a way that will work to their benefit to perhaps maybe flipping the Senate because it'll be a presidential year. And in a presidential year, generally turnout is higher and that usually benefits Democrats. That's Hamlin University professor David Schultz. Minnesota Matters will return after this.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A University of Minnesota study shows opioid-affected births to rural residents are increasing in both outstate and urban hospitals. Tasha Radel has more. The opioid epidemic has had devastating effects on families in rural communities, places where both maternity care and substance use treatment are limited. According to Dr. Carrie Henning-Smith, Deputy Director of the University of Minnesota Rural Health Research Center, pregnant women with opioid addiction may have particular challenges in receiving the care they need when they live in rural areas. Both maternal opioid use disorder and neonatal abstinence syndrome, also known as infant withdrawal, are increasing faster in rural areas than in urban areas. Rural women with opioid-affected births may give birth locally in rural hospitals or may be referred to a higher acuity facility in the urban areas, which may be better equipped to handle complex treatment needs. Joining me now is Dr. Carrie Henning-Smith. Doctor, can we talk a little bit about the background of the study? Yeah, absolutely. So in this paper, we use data from 2007 to 2014 and the data included nearly 1 million rural moms and rural infants who were born. And we were looking to see where opioid-affected births were happening. And we found that opioid-affected births are increasing in rural hospitals, in urban hospitals that aren't teaching hospitals, and in urban hospitals that are teaching hospitals. We found consistently that the urban teaching hospitals have the highest rate of urban or of opioid-affected births. They have higher percentage of opioid-affected births than the other two types of hospitals. However, um, we found that more than 60% of rural moms with opioid use disorder gave birth in a rural hospital. So even though it's more common in urban teaching hospitals, still majority of rural moms with opioid use disorder are giving birth in rural hospitals. And this is an issue because rural hospitals, by and large, have fewer resources available to them, um, and particularly for dealing with high-need births and pregnancies like these are. And when we look at this, um, these hospitals in, in rural Minnesota are they well enough equipped to to handle this opioid epidemic when it comes to, um, I guess, moms with uh, an opioid-affected birth? Yeah, well, um, the data that we used are national data, and so we weren't looking specifically at Minnesota, but we know from all of our research that we've done that rural hospitals have fewer resources across the board, um, and particularly fewer resources in the obstetric unit and maternity care space. And so when they're asked to take care of a high-risk situation, like um, babies who are born um, to opioid-affected mothers, um, we know that those rural hospitals have fewer resources available to them, that they're not as, um, usually they're not as highly staffed, they might not um, have as much training or um, resources at their disposal compared with urban teaching hospitals. Well, so if we if we say, I think one of the statistics that you said nearly half of rural moms with both opioid use disorder and, I guess, preterm delivery in these rural hospitals, is this, I guess, highlighting the importance of we need to, I guess, get more resources out in these areas of the state? 
Absolutely. Yes, we urgently need more resources in these areas of the state. We've done other work at the Rural Health Research Center on um, obstetric unit closure. And those closures, we know that they've been happening across the country, and they're so closely tied to uh, deficiencies in resources. So not having enough staff, not having enough training, um, reimbursement rates not being high enough. And so when it comes opioid-affected births, especially those that are preterm, um, we know that there are not enough resources in rural areas. So for greater Minnesota, we need more resources for rural hospitals, given that the majority of opioid-impacted births are happening in rural hospitals, and nearly a half of preterm opioid-impacted births are happening in rural hospitals. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Carrie Henning-Smith, Deputy Director of the University of Minnesota Rural Health Research Center. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes, how could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single, boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Vikings are on their bye week this weekend, sitting at 5-3-1 on the season and in second place in the NFC North Division. They're coming off of a win last weekend over the Lions and will next face Chicago on November 18th in Sunday Night Football in the Windy City. There are seven weeks left of the regular season, so now's a good time to catch our breath and take a moment to analyze the purple. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with former Viking linebacker Ben Lieber to get his midseason assessment of the Vikes. I feel like they're they're right where they're supposed to be, um, and I think for a good reason. That you know, had this team been undefeated, uh, we would have felt great about it. Had the team you know been like the Rams or the Chiefs and just seemed like they've got this offensive firepower and we're, it's all positivity. I think that's great. But, you know, I still am a firm believer that you need adversity to, to succeed, especially in the NFL and especially in the month of December and playing well into the stretch and into the playoffs. And you build up that adversity and you build up that character and toughness as a team by losing to a team like Buffalo, by going on the road to L.A. and getting in a shootout, you know, gaining some confidence that you can compete but also trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with our defense and not just getting on like, oh, we're a Mike Zimmer defense. We've got all these, we've got all these key pieces. We're automatically just going to step on the field and be good. You still have to go out and play and put together things and play as a team, and guys have to figure themselves out. So I, I like where they're at. Um, I know it's not exactly ideal record-wise, but I think this is going to be a hardened football team. And we're going to look back at this front, the front half of the season and like, 
I'm kind of glad they went through that and got humbled a little bit. What your defensive mind, obviously a former NFL linebacker, what was happening early and what changed to where they're playing at a, at a higher level now? Well, I, I look at a lot of it as, is coaching. Um, I think that there were times where I even think that Mike Zimmer was trying to pick up where he left off last year and like, well, this worked last year. We're just going to do it again. And you start running into these more creative offenses. And I think they were sort of playing reactionary football. And that's never good, especially on defense, because you're always in reaction mode. And, and I don't think they could ever get a leg up. Now, they got really fortunate in playing Arizona and playing the Jets. They get two rookie quarterbacks, and they get two offenses that are very simplistic. Right, where, right at the time where he says, I need to simplify my defense. And, and I think that simplification on defense allowed the guys to kind of reset and say, all right, so this is how we play just our regular coverage. This is how we do this. Let's not move a bunch of pieces pre-snap and get ourselves out of alignment. They kind of got back to the basics. And I, and I think that built up a lot of confidence within the team. And now you're starting to see, you know, like this last game, the, the defensive line playing out of their minds. You know, mm-hmm. Allow those guys to play fast and free. Let the guys in the back end do most of the thinking. And I think they're starting to get that, that nice rhythm and that nice formula starting to work. Daniil Hunter's the reigning NFC Defensive Player of the Week. What a game last week. He had the fumble recovery for touchdown, three and a half sacks. He's now number one in the NFL in sacks. I mean, it's a guy that, uh, if he continues this, is going to contend for Player of the Year honors. Yeah, and it sounds like, uh, according to the to the Vegas books, I think he's number four right now as far as the you know fourth leader in the clubhouse for her Defensive Player of the Year. Um, you know, the other guys, you know, that they're, you know, Aaron Donald and J.J. Watt and all that stuff, they're... Of course, those are great players, um, and I'm going to be biased here. But, you know, Daniil Hunter has done things that those other guys don't do. You know, you're, you're not asking Aaron Donald to go play defensive end or play outside of his three technique. Um, you know, J.J. Watt's not asked to go and, like, play other positions. Fullback every now and then. Yeah, fullback every <laughs> now and again. But, you know, the fact that, he, that Daniil had to step in for Everson, play on the right side, use a whole different technique, whole different set of fundamentals, and and thrive in that situation. And then all of a sudden now has to go back to the left defensive end and sort of flip-flop. Um, I think that's been remarkable. Also, you watch him play the run. The guy's fantastic against the run, too. So he's not just a guy that gets after the quarterback. He's disruptive in the run game as well. A good player. All right, so handicap this the rest of the way. Uh, down to seven weeks left. Rams are very good. Saints look like maybe now they've taken the step that if they hold mm-hmm. serve would have home field. How's the NFC shake out the rest of the way? Well, certainly I think the Saints are the team to beat. Um, you know, the Rams have to do a little soul-searching as well. You know, defensively, they're not as good as they thought they were going to be. And, and – that's the type of thing that I think is a dangerous proposition, just like I was saying. If, if it, the roles were flip-flopped and the Vikings offense was rolling like the Rams and we had, we had their record, I think that it's easy to mask and, and, and sort of delude yourself in the fact that, like, hey, we've got issues on defense. And then those issues start to come up in December and start to come up in the playoffs, and that's when it really bites you. Um, they've got issues on that defense. They've got to figure some stuff out. And I think the Saints, though, are – the most complete team. They're they're playing at the highest level. They have the most consistent quarterback. Uh, they have you know weapons on offense just like the Rams do. But their defense is playing pretty well. Secondary's got to step up a little bit. But I like I like where the Vikings are projecting against those two teams. Yeah, I was going to ask where the Vikings fit in in thirty seconds. How do you like it? Uh, I, I like him a lot. You know, I think, you know, having a healthy Dalvin Cook, as we saw this last game with the seventy yard run. You know, offensively they didn't do much outside of that, but. 
the fact that he can bring another element where he can squeak through the line, he can break a bunch of tackles, he's one of the best in the league at yards after contact, all that stuff is going to matter for their offense. And if this defense can pin their ears back and get after on the defensive line like they did last game, no doubt it's going to help out their secondary. And those guys are going to start picking the ball off more and get around the football. All right, you're the best. Thank you. All right, thank you. That's MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm with former Vikings linebacker Ben Lieber, who can be heard on radio broadcasts of the NFL and seen on television broadcasts of college football every weekend. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.